Good morning. Romans 8:26 through 30. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Thank you, Father, for your word. We know what you meant, brother. In the movie, The Karate Kid, Daniel unknowingly learns good karate techniques as his instructor, Mr. Miyagi, has him painstakingly wash and wax a dozen classic American cars. It should not surprise us, then, Christians, if we find out later in the story that God has been doing something similar in our lives all along. If the circumstances and details of our lives, which seem irrelevant and unnecessary, are actually part of the divine plan, all working together for our good. Verse 26 in our passage this morning begins with the word likewise or similarly. The subject is the Holy Spirit and the help that the Spirit gives to believers. But that word likewise tells us that there's some sort of comparison that's being made. And the comparison, I think, goes back to what it was the Spirit was last seen doing in Romans 8. Back in verse 16... The Spirit himself, Paul said, is active within the believers, assuring us, testifying to us that we are God's children in spite of the suffering that we are called to endure. When you suffer, when you're going through difficult moments in life, the temptation is to think God is hates me, God is angry at me, God is against me, the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 8, 16 says, is given to you to testify, no, no, that's not right, that's not right. So now Paul can say that in addition to the assuring presence of the Holy Spirit, we also have the Holy Spirit's assisting power. The Holy Spirit is both our comforter as well as our helper. He is present to assure us of who we are, but he is also present in your life, believer, to assist you with what it is you are supposed to be doing. So the Apostle Paul shows us in these verses how it is that the Holy Spirit assists us, helps us to see God's eternal purposes achieved through your life. That's pretty exciting. In other words, the Holy Spirit 
who is the abiding presence of God with his people now that the kingdom of God has come, now that sins have been forgiven, now that the long exile of Israel has come to an end, the Holy Spirit is a great gift to comfort us when the doubts arise because of suffering, but he is also a great gift to empower us as we are called to live in this day when the kingdom has come, but not yet fully come. And it is this responsibility that we all have as God's redeemed people that is now in the spotlight in these five verses. You and I, as citizens of the kingdom of God, that's who you are. You and I have a responsibility. We have a vocation. We have a sacred calling to be to the praise of God's glory, to make known to the world the excellencies of the one true God. How do you do that? Or better, how does the Holy Spirit help you to do that? And what the Apostle Paul does in these passages is he shows us here that the Holy Spirit helps us by first helping our prayers be effective. Second, he helps us to find encouragement in divine providence. And then third, he helps us to be energized by God's purpose. Effective prayers... Encouraging providence, energizing purpose. This is how the Holy Spirit helps us. So first, the first way that the Holy Spirit helps us to live as citizens in God's kingdom is by helping us with our praying. The Spirit helps us in prayer. Look at what Paul says here in verses 26 to 27 which begin, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, in our weakness. Now, what is this weakness? The word that Paul uses here is, in fact, a general term. It can refer to a physical weakness, like an an illness. It can refer to a a mental weakness, maybe a, a lack of confidence. But what Paul seems to have in view here is a spiritual weakness, The weakness that he is dealing with is the one that he describes more fully in the next verse. For we do not know, he says, what to pray for as we ought. Think of it, Christian. This is how spiritually weak you and I are. We don't even know the answer to the question. Now, what exactly should we pray about? Now, I'm guessing that some of you resonate with that truth. Even if we know this time in which we live as Christians, where the kingdom has come but not yet fully come, even if we know that that's kind of the place that we inhabit here in the year 2022, now on the other side of the revealing of the Messiah to the world, even if we know that we have access to God, immediate access to God, that we can approach Him as Abba Father, even if we know all of that, We find ourselves failing in prayer. You resonate with that? 
And part of the reason that we struggle to pray is right here. We don't even know what we should say, if we're honest. What exactly should we ask God to do tomorrow morning when you go to work? Forget the question, what does God want me to do today? We don't even know what to ask him about what we should do today. That's how weak we are as Christians. Every Christian knows how difficult prayer is, and no doubt much or maybe even most of the difficulty is due to our own spiritual immaturity, even to our doubts and our unbelief. But here's a word for us all. Even the most seasoned prayer warrior is humbled by Romans 8.26. May we all find the courage to admit to God our spiritual weakness and cry out to God like Israel's King Jehoshaphat did in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Now, of course, there are ways to pray. We do well to learn from the wisdom of spiritual ancestors, and our Lord himself gave us a model prayer to follow. We all can and should seek to, can I say it, get better at praying. Parents, you should be modeling how to pray to your children. You should be praying with them before you eat a meal. That's a good idea. Model prayer. Don't make it that little thing you have to do before you eat. Pray. Call out to God. But parents, also let your children pray. Let them pray out loud and give them instruction. Do you do that? Stop your children while they're praying and say, Now, now, here's how you should say that. Here's how you should pray. The pastoral prayer on Sunday mornings, by the way, has similar aims and purposes for all of us. But... Let us not think ourselves so strong in prayer that we deceive ourselves or miss out on the good help that the Holy Spirit gives to us. Look what he says in verses 26 and 27. The Spirit himself intercedes for us. That's not meant to discourage you from praying as if no reason to pray, the Holy Spirit prays in your place. An intercessor is someone who comes alongside, who prays with the petitioner, not just for the person he intercedes for. Our spiritual weakness, our inability to even know what to say to God is not a reason to remain in ignorance, but rather simply the recognition that, as Paul writes elsewhere, no eye has seen. No ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. We can't even pray like God wants us to pray because our prayers are way too shallow. All of us. We simply can't even imagine what it is God intends to do for us. You can't do it. We are, to use C.S. Lewis's famous analogy, like little children content with mud pies, not knowing we could be enjoying a vacation at sea. If we could see what God sees, how differently we would pray. So, 
strive to see what God sees. But note what Paul is telling us here. The Holy Spirit helps us right here in our weakness, in our inability to see and to pray with the perspective of God. That's what Paul means when he says the Spirit intercedes for us. Look what he says, with groaning too deep for words. These groanings clearly are meant to echo the groaning of all creation in verse 22 and our own inward groans mentioned in verse 23. The Spirit himself, think of it, God's own Holy Spirit is not distant from you in your groaning. He is right here crying out to God with us and for us. And you only have to take a quick scan through the Psalter to, to get a glimpse of and some examples of spirit-inspired groans. And we only have to remind ourselves of Israel's groans in Egypt and God's true-to-his-covenant response to take heart. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God knew. Don't you see, brothers and sisters, what is happening when we pray? Do you see what Paul is saying? Something mysterious happens when you start talking to God. God's own Holy Spirit starts talking to God. You didn't hear what I said. When you start crying out to God, God's own Holy Spirit cries out to God. The Spirit himself intercedes for us, verse 26 says. And this is a mysterious happening. God sees our trouble and he knows how bad it is. It gives him an ability that you and I could never have, an ability to communicate clearly to God what it is we truly need day by day. The mystery is expounded in verse 27, where we find a distinctively Jewish way of speaking of God. He's the one who searches hearts. And this is said to recognize The mindset of the Spirit. We saw that phrase all the way back in verse 6. The Old Testament speaks of the Old Testament, speaks of God's Spirit as the searching presence of God. Already, even in the Old Testament, a mystery, some sort of interaction between God and His own Holy Spirit that, of course, after the coming of Christ, would become more clear in Trinitarian recognition. This is already at play even in the Old Testament. The God who searches the hearts. What's going on? What's this mysterious presence of God speaking to God? So think of it. As the mystery of God himself goes, the mystery of the Trinity. If you ever pondered the Trinity at all, you probably were perplexed. And you should be. (laughs) But as the mystery of God himself goes, so goes the mystery of prayer. As the mystery of God himself goes, so goes the mystery of prayer. There's much that we do not understand about this biblical practice. Much even in its use that we do not know what's going on, what's happening. But that's because God himself is active in it in a way where he is both the intercessor as well as the one to whom we pray. And with God's own Holy Spirit praying with us, according to the will of God, as verse 27 says, you can be confident your prayers are not in vain. They're heard, and God knows. So that's how the Spirit helps. 
What do we do? You pray. I don't know what to do. Holy Spirit's there with you. Groan. Cry out to God. But second, it's with this mystery and its strong encouragement in mind that we come to the familiar words of Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Here is the second way that the Holy Spirit helps us live as citizens in God's kingdom. Like every day, day after day. Not only does he help us to pray, but second, he helps us find encouragement in the providence of God. Romans 8.28 makes quite the claim, doesn't it? It's all-encompassing, all things. And all scholars agree that Paul means here <laughs> everything. You mean, yep, that, that, yes, everything. It is positive. All things work together for good, not for evil. And this verse is, of course, a clear, came, a clear claim for the power of God's total sovereignty, his absolute providence. The circumstances of our lives, if Romans 8, 28 is to be believed, are not random. They're not the meaningless happenings of chance. They are instead pieces of a puzzle made to fit together for the purposes of God's good will. The question is, how do we know that? And we know that all things, how do we know? Now, one answer to that question is simply because of the Jewish worldview that the Apostle Paul maintains as he wrote that verse. It's a worldview that if you hold it, logically leads to the conclusion of Romans 8.28. You don't need even your New Testament to get this. That God is completely and totally sovereign just like this. Not just ordaining all things that come to pass, but preserving and governing every creature and every action to the perfect achievement of his will. That's the assumed perspective of the entire Old Testament. For example, we read in Job 37. By the breath of God, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world, whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. Psalm 135 verse 6 says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. The Old Testament is Calvinistic. Deal with it. From this divine power, Matched with the divine character of God, Paul also considers that the promises of God made in the Bible, revealed in the Bible, show him 
Everything works together for good because God's promises in the Bible are for good. So Paul can say everything will serve, will come together by the sovereign decree and plan of God to accomplish God's good purpose for his children. So the way that we know this and therefore find strength to help us in our weakness is by meditating on the power, the character, and the promise of God. How do you know all things work together for good? Think about his power. Think about his character and remember the promises that he's made in his word. But by the way, we do not know that all things work together for good because we can see how it's all coming together. This is a knowledge that we still have to hold in faith. Trusting in the God that we have come to know through Messiah Jesus. Romans 8, 28, can we just be honest, does not say all our circumstances are good in themselves. There is real evil in the world. And we Christians groan inwardly under the weight of tribulation and suffering that we all experience in this life. Verse 23 makes that plain. We are waiting, Paul says in verse 24, we are waiting for a hope that is not yet seen. So we have to wait for it with patience. As one pastor has observed, waiting on God is not like resting in a hammock with a glass of iced tea. (laughs) It's like holding a plank position until the coach says, you're done. This isn't easy. No one says the certainty of verse 28 makes life easy. And no one needs, and, and by the way, we need to exercise great wisdom in how you use that verse to encourage a suffering believer. In the time of great pain and suffering, I can promise you, learn it from the aging pastor in front of you. I can assure you that it will not help to say, Romans 8, 28, it's not going to help. That is the time for sympathy, for groaning with one another, even as the Holy Spirit himself groans with us. Nevertheless, Christians, we came to this verse, and I'm going to tell you, I'm glad it's in my Bible. I'm glad this verse is in our Bibles. It is here to remind all of us that God has promised to not only help us in our weakness, but to see that his help is triumphantly and utterly effective. But see also what else this verse teaches us. God's providence ensures that everything we experience has a good and redemptive purpose. Yet, look what it says. This is true for those who love God. This is true for those who are called according to his purpose. Again, the astounding claim of Romans 8.28 is not an empty method of self-help. Urging us, hey, just trust that everything's going to turn out fine. No, no. This is the astounding claim that only proves true for certain types of people. Namely, Those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. Those are the ones who can find encouragement in divine providence. 
Now, both of these descriptors refer to the same people. Both describe genuine believers in Jesus. They're both ways of speaking of a Christian. A Christian is someone who loves God. Now, we realize, of course, that it is not by loving God that we thereby become Christians. You got that straight? You you know that, right? The believer's love for God is one, W-O-N, one by God himself. It is one by Jesus, who Paul says in Galatians 2.20, loved me and gave himself for me. While I was still an enemy, Christ died for me. See the display of his love. We love him, the apostle John says, finishes it, finish it, because he first loved us. Any true lover of God is such only because he or she has come to see how deep the father's love for him or her truly is in the revelation of the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. That's it. There can be no genuine love for God without being converted by the reality of what God has done of his own free will for us in Messiah Jesus. Any claim to love God other than the claim that rests on the realization of how it is that God has first loved us and demonstrated that love is a false assurance of a friendly relationship with God. Now, I say false assurance because it's as if Paul himself wants to clarify his description of believers when he says, for those who love God. So he says, I mean, those who are called according to his purpose. Again, those two descriptors both refer to true Christians. If you are a genuine Christian, then you are a lover of God. And you are called according to his purpose. If you truly love God, you are called according to God's own purpose. Lovers of God love what God loves. Lovers of God want what God wants. They do not want what they want if it's not what God wants. Right? So these two descriptors refer to the same people. They're true of all Christians, but, but, but we need the help of the Holy Spirit to not, on, to not only know God's purpose, but to want it, to be energized by it. So tomorrow morning to say, I know what God's up to and I want what God wants. That's what I want to see happen today. We need the Holy Spirit to do it. So here's what we mean. This is the last point. The Holy Spirit helps us be energized, motivated. Motivated is a good word. I needed an E word. Energized by God's power. How does it happen? How does the Spirit do it? Let's, let's take a look. The word purpose, called according to his purpose. The word purpose refers to the sovereign will of God. What it is that God has determined to do. And that is not an insignificant detail. That the Bible is written to tell you the plan of God, the purpose of God. 
It is the whole overarching purpose of God that the scripture makes plain to us. Now, it can, of course, be described in various ways, but none, I think, are as clear as what we are told in the book of Ephesians. God, Ephesians 1 says, has now made known the mystery of his will. According to his purpose, Paul says, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And you're saying, what is it? What is it, Paul? Just say it. And here it comes. You ready? Here is the plan of God. Here is God's purpose. Here is what God is up to. To unite all things in Christ. That's it. The whole overarching plan of God throughout all of created history is aimed at one thing, uniting everything in Christ. That's the plan. The purpose of God is to bring everything together in Jesus Christ. And by the way, We've seen that purpose of God right here throughout Romans 8. We've been in this chapter for a long time on purpose. And we have seen this purpose of God in these verses. Go back to verse 3. God sent his son. Why? Here's what it says. Not simply to die for our sins. Yes, yes, yes to die for your sins. But there's a bigger purpose. Verse 3 says to condemn sin. Capital S. To bring an end to the dark, evil power that holds us and all of creation in slavery. That is the purpose of God. That is why Christ came. It is why he died. Verse 4 says, In order that the righteous requirement of the law, or as we said when we looked at that passage, the righteous verdict of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. What Paul has in mind, the way Paul sees the whole overarching purpose of God is in the language of a new exodus, a new exodus from Egypt. You remember the story? Paul can say, Jesus is our Passover lamb. You know that echo, right? You know the story? This is the one who has done what? What does the Passover lamb do? The Passover lamb in the Exodus story breaks the grip of Pharaoh over God's people. Remember all the plagues? And Pharaoh just keeps hardening his heart. But there's one that just breaks the grip, breaks the grip, And it is the Passover lamb. It is the one who stands in the place so that God's people won't die. And Jesus is our Passover lamb. He has broken the grip of Pharaoh so that we are now free to be God's people. See, we cannot see God's purpose if all we look at is redemption. You have to see why it is that Christ has redeemed us. Three months after the exodus from Egypt, God told the newly redeemed people, three months after Egypt, here's what God says in Exodus 19. Listen to these words. 
You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, here's what God says. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Talk about an energizing purpose. (laughs) No wonder the people heard these words from God and they said, deal. Exodus 19.8, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Of course, you're taking that offer. If God says to you, I've redeemed you to be my special people, my treasured possession. I am going to make you a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. You want in? You want in? Now, you know what happens in the story. You know that Israel failed. They did not live up to this energizing purpose of God. And we saw, of course, we've seen in Romans that this is not just Israel's problem. It's God's problem. Because God had made a promise, a promise to Abraham that God would make a nation He would make a family, and through his chosen family, salvation would come to the ends of the earth. So Israel's failure is a big deal. It's not just a big deal for Israel, it's a big deal for God. Will God be righteous? Will God be just? Will God keep his promise? And you and I know the answer. This is what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. God has kept his promise. In the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, a new exodus has taken place. You read the gospels. It's all written with exodus language. It's all about a new exodus taking place. Weep no more, the Apostle John was told in the Revelation chapter 5. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered so that he can open the scroll. We sing that song. And you're like, what is this all about? What is the scroll? It is the unfolding plan of God. It is the promise of God brought to completion for the entire cosmos. Weep no more. Israel has failed, but one has triumphed. Israel has sinned, but one has been obedient. And when John looked, he saw, as it were, a lamb slain. He sees this slain lamb take the scroll. And when he takes the scroll, he hears the resounding song of heaven. And you better pay attention to these words. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And are you listening? And you have made them a kingdom 
and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. You did not hear that. This is why Christ died for you and me, brothers and sisters. He died to make us members of his royal family. Who could not be energized by that? Are you in? Deal? Now, lest you think I'm making this up, nice sleight of hand, preacher. Ah, look again at verses uh, verses 16 and 17 in Romans 8. The Holy Spirit testifies that we are the children of God. And do you know what that means? What's it mean if you're part of the royal family? It means you are an heir of God himself. I love when Pastor John said last week, he's like, I, I just trying to understand. Like this, you could meditate on this the rest of your life. What does it mean to be an heir of God? <laughs> it means you're a fellow heir with Christ. So what is true of him is now also true of us who are united to him by faith. So if God made the crucifixion of his only son work together for good like this, is it hard to imagine he just might be doing the same in your circumstances, difficult as they might be? Verse 29 tells us that God's predetermined plan was to conform his people to the image of his son so that thereby he could build a royal family so that Jesus himself would be, Paul says, the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, of course. So this is what God is up to. He is conforming us all into the likeness of his own son, the one that he loves with an infinite love. This is God's work. He will see to it. But see also that this is not just God's work, it's God's pattern. It's his mold. He's conforming us all to Christ, not to somebody else. The goal of Christian discipleship is not to make us exactly like each other. What good would that be, right? (laughs) I mean, I love you all, but I love all of you, you know? Like, I get annoyed with this half because you're not smiling at me, I just start preaching over here. Okay, well, maybe these guys right here. Like, we, we, we're a family. We're a family. And this means that sometimes we get all kinds of weird ideas about what it means to be conformed to Christ. All kinds. I don't know how many times I've read a book or heard a sermon about becoming like Jesus. And I'm thinking... I think we're off here a little bit. Do not think that conformity to Christ means you need a new personality or a new job. I mean, I guess we all have to become carpenters. We got to be like Christ. No, here we go. Much less does being conformed to Christ mean you need a new ethnicity or gender. Jesus was a first century Jewish male, by the way. What God has done to make us like Christ is described in verse 30. He calls us, justifies us, 
glorifies us. All of these are spoken in the past tense, signifying the certainty that God will bring to completion what he has started. There's no wondering if this will happen. What is true of Jesus is what is also true for us who have redemption in Jesus. The call is the gospel announcement that leads God's people to say, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar and not any other power. We sang it earlier today. Before him, all thrones, all dominions fall. Jesus is Lord. And only Jesus, only Jesus. Justification is the vindicating verdict of God for all who trust in this crucified and risen Lord. And glorification, glorification means nothing less than our being seated with Christ in his royal position at the right hand of the Father. We reign on the earth forever. To be conformed to Christ means to become the human beings God intended for us to be all along. To be sure, it is a work in progress. But the work has already begun, and it's eternally secured in Christ. So we who trust in Christ are invited to come together as a family in worship. I'm glad you came today. But also in witness declaring to the world in our devotion to Christ and in the execution of our various vocations that Jesus is Lord and that his kingdom and only his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom of joy and love and peace. God is making everything in our lives come together for this great purpose. And while we, like the karate kid, might not see how it is happening, We've seen the end of the story, and we know enough to trust that it most certainly is coming together. That is energizing. That's why we can trust him. The karate kid not only learned good technique as he washed and waxed the cars, because on his 16th birthday, he also was given one of the cars that he had so diligently beautified. How much more do we stand to inherit as heirs of God? Just look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Oh, but that's next week's verse. So we'll look at that next time. Let's pray together.